Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. On today's podcast, I want to talk about some really exciting news, which is that today is the official release date of my new book, a sequel to Patients at Risk, and it's called Imposter Doctors, Patients at Risk. I'd like to share a little bit about the book with you today, hopefully convince you to buy a copy for yourself and tell your friends, colleagues, and patients all about it. So first of all, let's start out by addressing the elephant in the room, which is why isn't my co-author, Naran Alajba, also the co-author of this book? And the answer is not because I did not want her to be. When we finished the first book, which took us several years to write, since we were mostly doing our writing after hours, at night, on the weekends, and we even took a week off from work and rented a house together so that we could just do nothing but write 12 hours per day for the entire week. Then on top of that, it took us forever to find a publisher who was willing to take us on, We knew that we could self-publish the book, but we were afraid about not having enough credibility from our critics, so we worked really hard to find a publisher. We had a sort of heartbreaking situation in which, after getting rejected from dozens and dozens of literary agents, we actually had an agent that signed us and wanted to represent us and try to get us published by a mainstream publisher. But then she just sort of disappeared and later on told us she had a family emergency and had to withdraw. So then we were basically starting back at the drawing board all over again. We were really, really lucky that we were able to get an academic press to agree to publish us. But then we had to go through all sorts of additional rounds of editing. There was a lot of time and cost and a lot of effort that went into it. So I could totally understand when she said to me, that it was going to be a long time before she would be ready to write another book. Just because of the time commitment, she has children and a full-time job. And although I have a full-time job, I only have uh, the four-legged variety of children, which really does free up quite a bit of my time to be able to do these kinds of projects. Hopefully, Naran will want to co-write something with me again in the future. But for now, I can assure you that Naran's brilliant words and her thoughts are all chalk through this book. She is in almost every single chapter, if not every chapter. And that's because this book was gleaned from our podcast recordings over the last few years. Now, if you're a faithful podcast listener, don't get scared because this book is not simple transcriptions of the podcast. This is just full of brand new material that you have never heard before, lots of new research, and some really important insights about the role of non-physicians in healthcare. Even as we were wrapping up the first book, Naran and I suspected that we would need to eventually write a sequel to Patients at Risk. Just because the data was evolving so quickly In fact, even as we were getting ready to send the book to press, new information was breaking about concerns about non-physician practitioner care. But at a certain point, we couldn't just keep adding content. So we knew eventually there would need to be an update to this. But that happened a little sooner than we thought, because immediately after we published the book, we started to receive really not unexpected criticism. In fact, the 
criticism we received from groups like the American Association of Nurse Practitioners was really a lot milder than we thought it would be. It was more personal attacks saying that we were peddling conspiracy theories, that we, of course, like they say of all doctors, are arrogant and elitist and just trying to hold down nurse practitioners. Rather than actually finding any specific errors in our argument or really in our research, because we did have 500 citations. So we really didn't feel that compelled to respond to those sort of ad hominem attacks where we were afraid was that they might try to poke some holes in our argument that there were no high-quality studies involving care provided by independent nurse practitioners. However, that criticism did indeed come. I wrote a response to the Wall Street Journal in regards to an article that seemed to imply that nurse practitioners could practice the same as physicians, and I pointed out that there really were no large-scale studies on independent practice. To my surprise, the letter received a response from Mary Mundinger, who is considered the godmother of nurse practitioner practice. In fact, she wrote an article that has been cited more than 1,300 times in the literature and used to advocate for independent nurse practice. Dr. Mundinger wrote in the Wall Street Journal that I was completely wrong, that her study that she published was large, it had 1,300 patients, and that it involved independent nurse practitioners without physician supervision. And she claimed that her study showed that nurse practitioners could provide the same care as physicians. So the Wall Street Journal isn't exactly going to publish a back and forth between me and Mary Mundinger. So once they published Dr. Mundinger's article, pretty much that was the end of the story. Of course, Naran and I just could not let that lie because we knew that it wasn't true. One of the reasons we knew is because Naran had actually special ordered an autographed copy of Mary Mundinger's book, A Path to Nursing Excellence, and she had found in that book that physicians were definitely involved in the study. At the same time, our colleague, Phil Schaefer, who is also a PPP board member, he discovered some YouTube videos that Mary Mundinger produced in which she discussed specialized extra training that nurse practitioners received by physicians and also discussed the fact that the nurse practitioners had hand-selected their collaborating physicians. So now we have this really interesting, juicy information that we would love to share with our readers, but our book is already out, and so what do we do? And Naran and I decided that what we should do is create a podcast so that we could start sharing this information, and it would be a great opportunity for us to also discuss new articles that were coming out, new research, interview different people. And so we did our first podcast, and it was called There's Something About Mary. In fact, we invited our colleague, Phil Schaefer, to come on that podcast with us, and he was really a hit. Everybody loved him and his take on Mary Mundinger and really his in-depth research. Now, you would think that it would be difficult to find topics to talk about for our podcast, but it actually was incredibly easy because once the book was published, we started getting all sorts of emails from different people across the country, physicians who wanted to share their story, nurse practitioners and physician assistants who agreed with us, 
lawyers who wanted to discuss cases that they had tried regarding non-physician practice. And it actually was remarkably easy to come up with content. In fact, we had the podcast running every week for the first several months. We had so many fascinating guests that it became obvious to me that we were going to have a lot of new content for a new book at some point in the future. And in fact, in Imposter Doctors, you are going to hear stories from those podcasts, including from our interview with Tony Manugian. She is a critical care physician who was a nurse practitioner first, and she was able to really corroborate some of the information that we've heard about the differences in training. We interviewed Shannon Keeney, who is a nurse practitioner who totally agreed that nurse practitioners should not be practicing independently. And poor Shannon, as brave as she was, she received an awful lot of hate mail. And if you go to our YouTube page, you can see some of those comments. But Shannon is still fighting, and I spoke with her, and she has not changed her stance on this issue one bit. We also spoke with nurse practitioner Patrice Little, who said she was absolutely shocked to find that she was not prepared when she graduated, even though she received good grades, outstanding evaluations from her physician preceptors, and passed her certification exam on the first try. She said that she actually wrote her scholarly project about ways to obtain full practice authority, but later came to realize that she doesn't believe nurse practitioners should have independent practice because it's really not safe for patients. We interviewed registered nurse Rain Toman, who created quite a reputation for herself by posting screenshots of questions and discussions amongst nurse practitioners and nurse practitioner students in which they asked each other questions like, what is the easiest nurse practitioner school that I can attend? Or talking about the flaws in their school like receiving only two hours on learning how to read an EKG. She also shared posts in which nurse practitioners asked their audience on Facebook how to manage complicated patients, including children and geriatric patients with severe mental illness. That led me to investigate more about the role of psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners, which is a growing area for nurse practitioners. And it's really scary because these are some of the most vulnerable patients. Naran and I came across the story of Stevie Ryan, who was an up-and-coming Hollywood star who died by suicide after inappropriate treatment by a nurse practitioner. Not only did he provide her with substandard care, but he also entered into a sexual relationship. And after Naran and I did a podcast about that, in which we discussed the scenario with psychiatrist Anna Natasha Cervantes, we heard from Stevie Ryan's friend, Uni Kim, and she later came on the podcast to fill in some gaps about the story and talk about the fact that neither she nor Stevie had any idea that the nurse practitioner was not a psychiatrist. Rain Toman also shared some of her concerns about nurse practitioners increasingly seeking out cash-based practices like Botox and IV infusions, and that led me to research a website called the Elite NP, or Elite Nurse Practitioner, and what I discovered was that Justin Allen, the creator of the Elite NP, has an extensive course curriculum that promises to teach nurse practitioners with zero experience in a variety of clinical topics how to start their own cash-based practice. 
As I continued to dig into that topic, I found numerous cases in which nurse practitioners and PAs were acting far outside of their scope of practice to administer alternative type therapies to desperate patients and often resulting in patient harm. We talked to people that work in academia and we learned that some of these academic centers may be worse than even community centers as far as misusing non-physician practitioners. We spoke to a physician assistant who shared with us that she was expected to function at the level of a pulmonary critical care fellow, even though she just had a two-year PA degree. And she actually ended up resigning her job because she didn't think it was safe or fair to patients or to her team. We also discovered the efforts that academic centers are putting into trying to equalize non-physician practitioners with doctors. For example, Several Ivy League institutions had recently published studies purporting that nurse practitioners and PAs could perform colonoscopies as well as a gastroenterologist, even though the study excluded cases in which physicians provided assistance. The University of Pennsylvania tried to publish a study comparing radiology technicians reading x-rays compared to radiology residents. And in fact, PPP's board member Phil Schaefer and a colleague wrote a letter to the provost for research, and that article was withdrawn after they raised ethical concerns about it. We were really glad that we had the podcast when some new research articles came out that really supported our argument that non-physicians should not be practicing independently. There was an article published by emergency nurse practitioner researchers who looked at the variability in training programs and said that really only a minority of nurse practitioners providing emergency care even had an official certification or formal training, but of that small number... That formal training was so haphazard and so questionable that these researchers said that they did not recommend that nurse practitioners ever see patients independently in emergency rooms until these problems with training were resolved. There was also another study that was released looking at problems with family nurse practitioner training, and it showed that in many cases, nurse practitioner students had had minimal to no training in interpreting labs, ordering tests, or even prescribing medication. And then we were really excited when the Hattiesburg study came out, which showed that independently practicing nurse practitioners and physician assistants had lower quality and higher cost than patients that were cared for by primary care physicians. And what was so interesting about that was that Naran pointed out that these findings were the exact same findings that were published in one of the very first studies on nurse practitioner care, the Burlington Trial of 1974, which we detailed in Patients at Risk. Once I realized that we had so much more content, I started to do research to understand better how we got into this position in the first place. You know, we always hear about this physician shortage all the time, and in fact, that's the main reason that's given for NP and PA independence. But did you know that there was a time that there was predicted to be a physician surplus? It was actually not that long ago. It was in the 1980s and 1990s, and experts were predicting too many doctors. That was a big factor in why residencies were frozen in 1997. There was even a time during the Clinton administration 
in which there was a pilot program that paid hospitals in New York not to train physicians. Now, it didn't take very long before experts realized that their calculation models predicting a physician's surplus were totally wrong. But what's really fascinating is that certain organizations, like the Institute of Medicine, refused to acknowledge that there was an error. And even as late as 2014, they were still arguing that there were still plenty of physicians, that there was no need to try to increase the number of physician residencies. And in fact, they recommended that money be diverted from physician training to training nurse practitioners and physician assistants. I also did a lot of research into the rise of private equity and corporatization of healthcare, and I learned so much from emergency physicians Robert McNamara and Mitch Lee, who explained to me about the rise of contract management groups in emergency medicine beginning back in the 1980s and 90s. And if you just fast forward a few decades, you can see the way that private equity has expanded out from emergency rooms to really impact every single aspect of medical practice and it's really leading to potential patient harm. For example, when Beaumont Health hired a private equity staffing group for its anesthesia care, they replaced all of the anesthesiologists with CRNAs. Unfortunately, when 51-year-old Richard Curbello had a complication during his colonoscopy anesthesia, the CRNA was unable to resuscitate him, and he died. Likewise, when patient Paul Armbruster went in for a total hip replacement, he said that he had no idea that a CRNA was managing his care. He said he just assumed that an anesthesiologist would be present, especially since this is required by state law. He only discovered that there was no anesthesiologist on site after nearly dying from an anesthesia complication. He also told us on the podcast that his surgeon got fired because he refused to take accountability for being the supervising physician for anesthesia. Regarding the profit motive in healthcare, I got even more information from Marion Mass about the influence of pharmacy benefit managers and why insurance companies and pharmacy chains are so interested in hiring non-physician practitioners because there is so much money being made through prescription medications. I think one of the most poignant aspects of this book are the personal stories that I obtained from physicians who found themselves unable to receive care from a physician, either for themselves or for a loved one, including many physicians who were unable to obtain physician care for their children. I talked to Dr. Megan Sears, whose little boy, Andre, had congenital heart disease and she was told that if she had a problem with a member of the team, which was run by nurse practitioners, that she could seek care elsewhere. And this happened while her child was having a catheterization performed. The stories that you'll hear in this book are heartbreaking, but they're important because if even physicians are having difficulty obtaining physician-led care, then what hope does any patient have? In fact, the issue of social justice is a really important theme throughout this book because research consistently shows that patients with limited socioeconomic means and of minority groups are disproportionately receiving care from non-physicians rather than from physicians. But this book isn't all doom and gloom. There are definitely bright spots. There are lots of stories about physicians fighting back, about announcements from hospitals in which they have reversed course on decisions regarding physician-led care, 
on physicians lobbying politicians to ensure truth and transparency statutes, and in physicians opening up their own practice so that they can offer physician-led care. We also have some really important and good advice from attorneys on how physicians can protect themselves from liability when supervising. The appendix includes information for patients on how to report improper care and also resources for patients to find physician-led care. And you'll also get some really inspiring words of wisdom from our own Natalie Newman, who tells us that it's not too late to divert the ship. I hope that this has given you a little taste of what the book holds and that it's piqued your interest. So please, if you'll go to Amazon and search for Imposter Doctors, you'll find it for sale as a paperback and as an ebook or Kindle. And coming very soon, within the next week or so, I hope to have the audiobook available as well. As always, if you're a physician, I encourage you to join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection. You can learn more at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. If you'd like to participate in the podcast, you have questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me. You can contact me through the website, patientsatrisk.com. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.